I wonder when we reduce words as powerful as awesome mm. and experiences as powerful as what you know, Brad planned to do on his own, mm. got everything ready and did it. And, you know, I seem to remember like literally, I think we had lunch like literally a week before you went. And so many people are like, oh, are you sure you should be doing this? Oh, are you sure you're ready? Oh, are you sure you've done all the training? Oh, couldn't you do something easier? And I just remember going, hell yes, go, win, <laughs> kick bottom. It'll be awesome in the proper sense of the word. I'm here today with David Olney and Brad Wall. How are you, Brad? Very well, thanks, Tim. Yourself? I'm doing very well. It's good to have you on. And how are you, David? I'm very well. I've already had a coffee. Well, that's that's always a good start for you, David. Uh, now, Brad, you're a very special guest because you have, I guess, some stories to tell us today. I've heard from David that you've been on a rather interesting trip. Would you like to tell us about that? Absolutely. So last year, I thought it would be a very good challenge um, take a trip down to Tasmania to do a big multi-day hike in the thick of winter by myself. So around July, I finally decided that I would do this trip in August last year. And I booked the trip and what it would entail is about seven days of hiking across Tasmanian wilderness in the thick of snow and whatever else Tasmanian wilderness has to throw at me. Now, I had completed this hike a couple times beforehand, so I did know the layout of the land. However, it would be a whole new challenge trying to go through the snow, trying to do it on my own and prospectively not meeting many people along the way. Far out, that does sound challenging. Uh, I'm sure David has lots of lots of lessons that he can pull out of that experience. Well, I think the first perhaps good thing to start about is to go back to the day we were having lunch when you were still trying to decide to do it. Mm. Okay, that was really interesting because you were going, well, why do I want to do this? And you came up with all sorts of interesting reasons and over lunch we worked out that there's all sorts of reasons to do something like this. So having done it now, comparing back to when we talked about it you know, in July or whenever it was, June, July, what did you feel, what did you think you were going to get out of it? And were they the things you got out of it? So I think one of the major things I thought I would get out of it is the experience of pushing through great big challenges just on my own without that aspect of having a whole group of people there, everybody egging one and on each other along or trying to support one another. I feel that it's very important to do things in groups and if you are in a group of like-minded people you can support each other you can really achieve great things however if you do something on your own it's a whole different ball game you've got nobody to relay your thoughts to at the time uh, you do have these thoughts of am i going to be able to do this if the challenge is that great you know should i turn back should i pull out and well really those thoughts are just thoughts that are in your head if you Think about the risk and what might happen along the way. The likelihood is you're going to achieve them. So it's a great exercise of being able to tell yourself that you can do this and that they are just thoughts in your head that you can overcome. I think the greatest challenge was probably trying to overcome that aspect, but then also the added other elements such as the cold and dealing with um, having to walk over ice and snow and just a whole different terrain from what we're used to here in Adelaide. Well, from what you were telling me too, you weren't sometimes walking over it, you were sinking into it. Oh, So each time so. you were having to pick your foot up, it was like, I will now pick my foot up to knee height, swing it forward, <laughs> plop it back down on the crust, watch it sink, 
let it settle. Oh, it just went in a stream. Absolutely. I love that story about foot sinks, foot sinks, foot sinks, foot is now in water. Crap, I'm in a stream. Oh, am I going to get frostbite? <laughs> um, that day in particular was the final day of the hike. And for those who've done this hike before, it's Tasmania's overland track. And I completed it from south to north. So this track goes between the southern end of Lake St. Clair and the northern end of Dove Lake at Cradle Mountain. And on my final day, I travel between a hut to the final part of Dove Lake and that area was about 10 kilometers in length. Uh, throughout that whole day there were snow fields, um, the snow was probably about two meters deep from 1k into the hike up until about two to three k's outside of the end and the snow had just fallen the night before. I mean, the night before there was a snowstorm, so there were no tracks of people's feet having walked the, from the day before. They were all buried in fresh snow. And with each step you take, you'll find your leg just sink straight through because the snow hasn't had the opportunity to really melt and refreeze and become ice. It's just, it's like powder, but you can squish it. You can turn it into a bowl. You can sink through it. You think it's strong. Well, no, it's not really. Your foot's <laughs> going to sink straight through. And when you are, well, at the time I was about 84 kilo and I had a 30 kilo pack on me, uh, much heavier than I expected, but uh, with combined weight of about 115 kilo, uh, you'll sink straight through that snow and you go down to mid thigh length and you'll feel just water creeping up your leg because you've actually landed in a stream below, which you haven't been able to see because it's buried in snow. (laughs) And so... The exercise of digging your leg out from that snow when that sort of started to melt and refreeze around your leg is it gets pretty taxing when you pull your leg out you step one maybe two steps and it happens again and it happens again and then you fall over and you can't pull yourself out because when you put your arms into the snow to push against the ground your arms are going to go through the snow (laughs) So after about the 10th time of that happening, I thought, well, how can I come up with a a strategy to do this without being able to just fall through? And reality was I couldn't. (laughs) Uh, No matter what I could think of how I could come up with a solution to this, the only solution was to just keep pushing through. And, you know, sometimes it took me having to take my pack off while I was laying in the snow and just find a bit of hard snow, pull myself up, pull my pack back on, take another two steps, happens again, and so on and so forth. So uh, normally that stretch of the hike should only take about maybe two and a half, three hours. Took me about seven hours to do. Wow. Yeah. And yet as you're talking about this, I can hear the smile. (laughs) You sure can. (laughs) You can hear me laughing. I, you know, the... uh, I guess the idea of that great challenge, it seems almost daunting in a way, but um, I suppose many people I've talked to would think, well, why do you want to do this? Why are you doing it? It sounds just crazy. It sounds dangerous more than anything. And a lot of people's idea about spending money to go away and have a trip away would be more so to relax on a beach or to go on some nice walks or go on a cruise. But for me, it's about getting out of your sort of day-to-day routine, 
going out in the wild, seeing wild nature for how it is, getting back in touch with, I guess, humans that have been able to survive in this kind of terrain for thousands of years beforehand, before, you know, the modern comforts and the modern facilities we have today. And so the aspect of being able to go out in there, despite having modern equipment, but still being able to go out there and survive those elements and overcome those challenges is just something I, I really appreciate having the opportunity to do and really love doing. See, I love that when you were getting ready to do it and you were doing all the planning, how you were having to think up all the contingencies of what happens if and making sure you had the things you need. But knowing you couldn't plan for everything, but by planning for enough things, you know, you should have been okay. And, you know, when you left, I was totally confident that you would get to the end. Were you totally confident? I was about 95% confident. Yeah, which that's yeah. a healthy amount. And that's yeah. what, actually, I should clarify, I don't mean I was 100% confident because shit can always happen. Sure. But I thought Brad would find a solution to the shit. Mm. Yeah. So a wonderful thing, uh, a friend an ex-Navy SEAL said to me once, and he said, you know, when you face anything new, first step is detach, step back one step, think up a heap of options, then work out what outcomes you'd get from those options and then choose which is the best of the options and outcomes. Is that pretty much the process that got you through, again, sinking in the snow every two steps? It it was, yes. I mean... With the with the contingency plans, I guess, the only other contingency plan or two contingency plans I thought of, one was to go back to the hut where I'd started the day's walk and camp there for another night and just see if the snow yeah. melts a bit for the next day. Um, that seemed very viable because I had a few days at the end spare in case something happened. And in this case, something did happen. Mm. Um, the only other plan was to walk myself back to the very beginning of the track, uh, walk back, you know, five, six days worth of walk just to get out. You know, that didn't seem viable at all because reality is um, you're going to walk back those six days, you're going to get back to the information centre at Lake St. Clair and you're going to be more or less on a remote highway uh, just waiting it out. And I didn't have enough food either to travel back six yeah, extra days. So either days. way, you would have been better off in a hut. Mm. Now, if I remember correctly, a lot of nights you actually stayed in your tent rather than in the huts, didn't you? Yep, that's right. So took on the thing of, okay, I can pretend civilization at the end of each day by being in a structure that's been built to survive this, or I can put up my little one-man tent and genuinely do this myself. Mm. So you know, that again to me, that's what the trip was really about. You know, you're not going to cop out the end of each day and take the simple option. You said you're going to do this your way with what you can carry, and that's that. And you managed it. And you know how many people you came across when you did the trip? They might have been doing the walk in the snow, but every night they were crawling into the cabin, and you're having a fire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, there was one group of people who had walked through more or less a blizzard at Cradle Mountain, and they didn't have any snow gear with them. They had warm clothing they had enough food in their packs but really they'd planned to walk the track as though they just have to face rain not snow so on the first day i remember them telling me that they had actually taken about an hour to walk 150 meters because the visibility was low they didn't know where they were going they were relying on a gps but they weren't familiar with the track so they didn't even know if they were going in the right direction 
Wow. And the sun had started to set by about 5, 5.15. With low visibility, they thought, heck, we just have to stop here. And thankfully, there's an emergency hut nearby where they could stay. However, it's two stories high and the first story was blocked out with snow. So they stayed up on the second story. <laughs> so literally there's a door at both levels. So if the snow builds up, you can get in either one. Yes. And in fact, on the second level on the outside, there's a hook with a shovel on it. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's higher than that, you can dig your way in. That's it. Wow. <laughs> What's it like to crawl into your little tent and your little sleeping bag at 5.30 at night knowing you've got, what, 11 hours till the sun comes up? Uh, it was actually a glorious feeling each night getting into the tent. Um, I'd researched a lot about gear that needs to be able to withstand the elements. And so I decided to get a Hilleberg tent. Now, this is a Swedish brand that's well known for its extremely hardy tents. In fact, it's, it can block out so much of the elements that there's a warning on the inside that says, warning, you need sufficient ventilation or you could actually suffocate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so giving a bit of ventilation, I just crawled into the tent and each day I was really tired, really knackered from the, the, um, the walking and just pushing through. However, it felt good knowing that in that tent I would be safe and I've completed another leg of the track. So... It was good crawling into the tent each night, although um, it, it still wasn't warm, I would say. You can pack all the down gear. You, you've got, you know, thermals, down jacket, down sleeping bag. But if one of those fails to work properly or if you fail to utilize those properly, then you can have a cold night. And for a few nights, there were cold nights because... I think my sleeping bag has been wearing out. It's now seven years old. It's rated for minus five degrees. However, every night I'd wake up about two in the morning and whatever side of me was laying against the ground was just freezing cold. <laughs> I thought, yeah, well, I can't really fix that. Maybe I'll just wear more clothes. And it helped a little bit. It did. But at a certain point, you can't get in your sleeping bag with more clothes on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, you know, it's the funny thing about down is... To create warmth, it has to rely on space. Yeah. But if you're laying on down, you're obviously squashing it. Yeah, nice space. space. Yeah. yeah. So wearing layers and layers and layers of down is not going to be terribly helpful. It's going to help somewhat, but you need to rely on more layers of air. So if you have a thick mattress and then a down sleeping bag, uh, if you have a sleeping bag liner as well and wear woolen thermals, yeah. you'll survive. You may not be toasty warm but you survive <laughs> and again as you proved you can survive for multiple days doing this yeah, that's right <laughs> now something to me that's really interesting is every time you talk about this you can just hear how much fun you had the sense of awe that comes from looking down into a valley covered in snow and going i'm about to either walk that or i've just finished walking that yeah is that essentially the adrenaline buzz that makes this all worthwhile is that where all the endorphins come from i think majority of it does um you get to a remote location on the, the walks and you can find lookout points, you can go to areas where nobody seems to walk and you really have these lookouts where you can really see all the distance you've covered. You know, there are some areas along the track where you can see one end of the track to the other. You can see, you know, 60 odd Ks of walking there, 80 even from certain points. And that really, um, really shows you I guess, what you've walked through, what you've covered. And the views, uh, the views, although they're amazing, um, you know, there are comparable other views around the world which may be better. Uh, however, at the same time, 
you really know you're in a different place and you really know you're in a different area and you require a different set of skills to be able to walk through this area. Um, seeing valleys of snow just reminds you too that uh, nature is very much out of human's control and it will essentially do what it wants and you have no control over it. But you can still get your way through. And so our still... power is how we adapt. Mm. Again, our power is not that we can change it or that we shouldn't change it, but that we can adapt and overcome it. What seems incredible to me is that, so you've managed to do that with you know a few advances in modern technology, right? So you've got your down, you've got your Swedish tent and all mm. those kinds of things. So it is amazing to me that people were able to do that same kind of trek or at least trek that kind of terrain 100 years ago even a yeah, thousand years ago whatever it was mm. that it's that it's an even step further into discomfort but even even to do it today is simply amazing and i actually had no idea we even had terrains like that in australia clearly i don't know too much about tasmania but <laughs> well, tasmania they say is comparable with new zealand um it's tallest mountains about 1600 meters in altitude and of course at the water's edge it'll be around zero so there's quite undulating terrain there and it's it's very hilly you struggle to find flat patches unless it's on a plateau or sitting below it um there are a lot of walking trails down there and i mean um with various national parks they've it's it's got a real hiking community down there you know they've even got a list of peaks that they rate the difficulty of you know 10 being the hardest one being the easiest um lots of various multi-day walks lots of variations of that and i think part of how that has been able to be cultivated down in Tasmania is there's a lot of fresh water around. You know, if your water is coming off the mountaintop, you can almost be guaranteed that it's safe to drink down there. Yeah. Whereas here, you know, you find a river in Adelaide. The and last thing you, you want to do is oh, drink it. Yes, no way. Yeah. <laughs> Regular listeners of this podcast will be reasonably familiar with the themes of, uh, you know, the, the discipline um, and kind of satisfaction you'll get out of these kinds of uh, endeavors so for instance we've even spoken about how Nietzsche has had a very stoic practice of of hiking mountains for you know hours at a time and and putting himself through uh, difficult conditions but what's new to me out of this is the awe involved in it and the reward that you got from being where you were and I want to hear more about that because uh, as someone who basically lives a city life um, you know, I have been camping, but it's not its not something we get to... We don't get to take awe of the uh, concrete jungle, you know? Before Brad answers that, by camping, we mean camping, not glamping. Yes. Oh, Glampers yeah, are course. excluded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to hear more about awe. Like, why is it so rewarding, I think, is what I want to get to the crux of. I'm not sure if you, David, have any ideas on well, that. Well, I suppose what I was thinking is, you know, Brad's thinking about another trip. And what I was going to ask is, what's driving you on to the next trip more? The discipline of showing you can do it, or the awe of what you'll see there, or do the two things end up feeding each other? So maybe that's a way into this. What do you reckon the driver was by the end of the trip? The, the discipline, you know, you could do it, and that's a wonderful confirmation of agency. I can do or was it, or or is it some strange combo of the two where they feed off each other? I think there's certainly a strange combination of the two. Um, I mean, I've always had a fascination with mountains and undulating terrain. So I remember as a kid, 
driving to my grandparents' house, you can see Mount Lofty in the distance. And it used to be one of my favorite parts of going to my grandparents' house was actually just being able to see Mount Lofty from a, from a good standpoint. Um, so I think awe in that sense is, has fed my motivation to go to Tasmania and also to look at other trips, uh, other hiking trips specifically. Um, when you're outside of the city, and you are in a real place of just natural wilderness, there's, there's a lot to be said about how our earth has been shaped over the years. And, you know, I think an important source or a special source of awe for me uh, when I was traveling and going overseas was when I went to Oman, actually. Uh, geologically, they have a fascinating landscape and country there. You can you can see almost a couple of kilometers of rock that's just split straight out of the ground. It's as though the Earth's crust has just split up and shot straight out over a kilometer into the sky. And the awe in that sense is partly what feeds my motivation to go. However, also the discipline of being able to conquer those challenges and really go to remote places and know that you are doing something that's difficult, that... Uh, humans have done for thousands of years. I think an important part of that discipline too is knowing that, well, many people may see it as too hard to complete. They might think that hike is too hard. Um, for me, I've never seen it as too hard. It's just a matter of having to keep going, just do it chunk by chunk, bit by bit until you get through. And so those two aspects really feed my motivation to go. Uh, but awe in itself, I think is almost a, a motivation uh, while discipline and overcoming those challenges is a way for you to see how you are in sort of as your level of um, human agency in that regard. So I think it comes back to human agency, as you said, David. And, and that's sort of what I'm sitting here thinking, listening to and just pondering on is, you know, we can push ourselves so that we can get to places where there's a greater chance of encountering awe. Because I was thinking about this today before we did the podcast. What I was realizing is as I get older, there are less things that generate awe. Because you know, some of you don't get to experience multiple times. And you, know, you get so busy doing day-to-day -day garbage that often doesn't have awe in it anymore. So that you actually have to start planning for how to gain access to things that will just stop you dead and make you go, whoa, the world, the universe, nature, whatever, Whatever your thing is that floats the ore boat is amazing. And, you know, yours, you can train for months to then go for that week or two weeks so you can have a clear cycle of the discipline putting you in the situation to get the experience that's both a double payoff, pays off the discipline, but also exposes you to that environment that has such a big effect on you. And you know, I'm sitting here thinking, where do I get ore on any regular basis anymore? And I think I only have one reliable day a year. And it's actually the Adelaide Custom Knife Show <laughs> where these highly talented, motivated human beings have spent years learning to heat and beat steel to make these perfect, simple tools. You know, simple in the sense of a cutting edge is how we reshape the world. You, know, you can carve a wooden spoon. You can process a, an animal to get food. You can process a hide to have warmth. You can use a sharp edge for anything. We just take it for granted now, but no, to start with a bar of steel and to heat and beat and grind 
and then temper and then build a handle for it and then create a sheath for it. There's a zillion steps in that that in the end end up with a perfect example of a tool. And that's my reliable ore day. It's just going, people will invest years in getting excellent at this. I suppose I have a little weird awe moment occasionally with really, really good yoga practices. We get to the end and it's literally like you float because your body's so strong and flexible at the end. It's almost like you don't even notice the ground below you. You Gravity doesn't hold you down anymore. But yeah, awe's a rare thing. Tim, where do you find awe? (laughs) And again, it's mean to ask, man, because we didn't plan to No, not at all. Well, it's not that mean to ask because while you were talking, I prepared my answer. Oh, awesome. Well done, you. (laughs) Well, I was only thinking about it because I'm lucky enough to be in in a position where I come into the studio and and be in awe of ideas and and people like yourself, Brad, uh, where... These things are inspiring and awesome. If I'm going, to, if I'm allowed to use that word, it's slightly overused. Well, let's go back to it. Yeah, its proper meaning is it, you know, something that you know, gives you a sense of awe is awesome. We've reduced it from that to cool. Yeah, to cool. cool. And no, cool is cool. Awesome is awesome. Yeah. And the two should not be interchangeable. Nor should mm. sweet. No, <laughs> like sweet is sugar. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm really bad for that one. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Cool. <laughs> I mean, I suppose none of them really have their original meanings, do they? That's that's a foot. Language is amazing and keeps changing. But I wonder when we reduce words as powerful as awesome Mm. and experiences as powerful as what Brad planned to do on his own, Mm. got everything ready and did it. And I seem to remember like literally, I think we had lunch like literally a week before you went. And so many people are like, oh, are you sure you should be doing this? Oh, are you sure you're ready? Oh, are you sure you've done all the training? Oh, couldn't you do something easier? And I just remember going, hell yes, go, win, <laughs> kick bottom. It'll be awesome in the proper sense of the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, you know, I remember being just so excited about the idea that you were going to do something that should lead to both that sense of fulfilling the need to test self to see how much agency you have, as well as the opportunity for the awe of that environment. But it doesn't seem that a lot of other people before you went had kind of twigged that's really what it was all about, those mm. those things together. I think an interesting element to it too is the idea that, well, one might see a hiker doing these hikes in these circumstances as a thrill seeker or just, you know, attracted to danger, whereas I don't see it that way. I see it as a challenge and, you know, I've used all of my agency to actually look at all of the risks involved and I've made a rational calculation I guess on how risky each of those elements will be so for the track in particular it's known to be just uh, filled with snakes basically venomous snakes everywhere and you've done it twice in summer which means there were slitheries oh yes <laughs> oh spiffy yeah. I think I like the winter idea way better <laughs> I remember one trip it was two weeks down there saw probably 15 tiger snakes Ooh, uh, during that good. time and you know, when you're walking through button grass, you can barely see where your feet are going. So every now and then you will see a snake just slither out. And I mean, tiger snakes, if you leave them alone, they'll generally leave you alone. That's not that's not professional advice, just for the no, record. No, I'm However, about to say this for the sake of the audience, if you don't know what a tiger snake is, they're the Australian snake that will take one look at you and go, I can take you. yeah the advice is definitely do not approach no definitely do not aggravate it um just stay back and let it do its thing Mm. and during summer yes there are many snakes out there 
but during winter, I never saw one. That's good. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Brand, I want to ask you, uh, were you brought up in a family that kind of cultivated hiking? It sounds like be- being that you've, you've gone before, was it something that your family was interested in? I would say uh, one of my grandparents was into bushwalking. It's camping and walking along trails. Um, none of the rest of my family enjoy hiking, though. Okay. So that's what I wanted to ask because it. I would say that as a hobby, it's somewhat in a minority, right? It, I think people view it as it's just too hard or maybe not interesting enough. Um, but I think the reality of it is that you don't know whether you would like it or not until you try it and not enough people give it a chance, I think is perhaps what I'm getting from this. Would you say that the interest in it is is stems from the nature side of it? Perhaps a combination of that and um, the challenge? Or was it something you saw that, hey, I can do this and it is like a feat of um, human experience, let's say? W- which do you think is the stronger influence to getting an interest in it? So many listeners might be like, oh, Brad, that's amazing. You've you've done that. I could never do that. What could you say to them maybe is a better way to phrase that? I think um, for me it comes down to the, the former of those two um, ideas, I guess. It is more about the, the nature and the overcoming obstacles part of it is important to me. However, the same time i do enjoy nature i know a lot of people don't they don't like you know dirt and dangerous animals and cliffs and mountains and you know the wild they prefer the city or they prefer the ocean uh, so everybody's got their own tastes and for me just being a mountain person that is one motivating aspect of me going down and doing these things i think that is more of the motivating factor for me but I think that also the idea of there being a challenge that can be overcome just to show yourself, to grow yourself as a person uh, is probably not so much motivating as the first factor, but definitely in there. And, you know, I think for anybody who did have ideas on what they might find to be a good thing to do to develop themselves, um, they may get a similar feeling out of doing that thing to what I get out of hiking. So, you know, some people love playing football, for example. Well, you know, what if you went and played a game in the AFL and as, as part of a team you won or you, you did really well? And, you know, there are a whole other, other range of factors relevant there. Uh, everybody can find, I think, different areas where they might find awe or challenge and... I think for me, it's one motivating element is that you have one life. And if you can find areas that you do find awe and challenge in, then um, that might sustain your ability to uh, have this energy to go and do other things in life too. Yeah, you've got to keep the monotony at bay because the monotony is what happens when nothing does kick off awe. And the problem with so much of the modern world you know, people binge watching Netflix, vegging in front of YouTube. Yeah, you need some downtime, and downtime's great. But it's a, you know a great Einstein quote, and I wish I could remember the exact words. It's um, something like, you know, a, a person who doesn't work hard can't appreciate rest. Yeah, mm. and that's the point of discipline, in a sense. If you're disciplined, then it opens up opportunity to experience things that otherwise would be too difficult. If you're not disciplined, you plod along 
and you're happy for what the world puts in front of you. And maybe if you're lucky, you can enjoy that. But in the main, things that just land in front of you tend to be boring. <laughs> Working towards things generally adds value. And all right, all those couch potatoes that love binging Black Mirror, no. <laughs> just no. <laughs> You know, there's a, an interesting idea behind it too, I think, which is there's an idea that we work and then outside of work we do whatever else there is. For some people it is just relax or rest mm. or um, pursue other things. Um, I like to look at the the whole spectrum of work, life and all my activities as sort of a continuum that I move through. You know, I'm working but then I'm doing things to work towards something else or uh, improve skills or pursue other hobbies and some of it might be relaxing or resting but I don't really call an activity or a hobby my relax or rest time as such. I like to think of everything as its own activity that is contributing towards something whether it be for my resting and healing or whether it be to building on a skill or mm. helping the community. That absolutely resonates with, with me as well. Uh, there's a, a, I'm sure you would get the odd person in your life saying, you know, you're, you're busy and people will expect that you're busy all the time. Um, there's a great phrase and I encourage you to look it up um, called positively occupied, which and enables you to stop saying, oh, I've been really busy with X, Y, Z because it usually has like a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like when you're using uh, your playtime, I suppose, um, for an ultimate outcome, not just lounging or resting, that it is um, you're working towards something and it's very positive, but mm. you're also busy. But I guess you're changing that word to occupied. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, a good we, way to... The problem is now we have phrases like busy work, like yeah. pointless work that takes mm. up time and makes it look like you're, you're zipping around but nothing's happening. So there's an interesting distinction. I can't remember which author made it. I think it's something that James Clear talks about in Atomic Habits the idea of motion versus action. Be very careful that what you're doing is not just motion, that you're not just moving purposelessly, that what you're doing is action, i.e. action always has an end in mind. Mm. You know, so it seems to me that you know being positively occupied is being involved in action rather than motion. Mm. Perhaps from the outset. <laughs> well, at least, at least towards the end point anyway. You think? Yeah. I'm sure because eventually you want to keep so occupied that yeah, eventually then the occupation becomes more important than um, your goal, perhaps. That's true. Mm. So you need to keep uh, goal-focused. Well, or just enjoy the process. Mm. Yeah, but you're occupied in, hey, this is fun and I'm learning and I'm doing and I'm you know, getting more ready to do the next interesting thing I want to try. Would you not argue that... Sorry, but I don't mean to fixate on this point, but do you, would you not argue that uh, something that is action or something that is moving toward a, a good goal is positively valenced. Maybe that's where the positive part of it comes from. Could well be. I, yeah. I just like the distinction between motion and action. That mm, Motion agree. was literally just moving for the sake of movement. Mm. And, you know, if you're exploring a new area, do you just wander aimlessly or do you explore with purpose to build a map? So even <laughs> with the most basic thing of using my cane, I can't just wander aimlessly or get lost. It always has to be deliberate. So maybe I'm a bad example in that I have to choose action in order to create enough order to sort of function in a big world where using a cane makes life more difficult. 
So, you know, it's probably given me an action orientation where motion is just not an option. What I think is interesting too is that um, you may not have goals as such or an end goal inside, but you might have a set of values and that process of those actions might actually be feeding into your values as a person. It manifests your values by doing the activity. Exactly. And that's how you can find that sustainment to continue doing it and then perhaps develop those goals that you might want to achieve in that area. So when you do your crazy fast run up Mount Lofty in prep for going to Tasmania, (laughs) it might hurt at the time. But it's with the set of values that says, I'm about to go and see less familiar nature in an extreme time of year on my own with all my kid on my pack. Woohoo! <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so Adelaide is a strange place to, to live as, for someone that loves mountains so much. Is that the kind of training routine that you take up? Do you, do you quite literally just run up Mount Lofty? Well, in the lead up to the Tasmanian hike, I would walk through the hills with a pack and I'd also try to work on speed as well so i think most importantly getting used to having heavy pack on is the the major part that you need to become used to however at the same time uh keeping your speed up is is just important for general fitness too so Mm. yeah i did uh run up mount lofty a few times and although at the time you're you're thinking why am i doing this but you know i know why i'm doing it yeah, but sorry it and makes infinitely more sense when you do it with a heavy pack on mm. than when some numpty does it covered in lycra <laughs> <laughs> now that's cool sort of but if they just put 20 kilos on the back how much fitter would they be mm. <laughs> just remember the instagram photo at the end yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes you can either have that instagram photo at mount lofty in your lycra or at the end of the hike in tasmania up to your thighs in snow with a goofy smile <laughs> who needs all when you can just put hashtag awesome so, uh, <laughs> yeah hashtag cool sweet yeah. awesome yeah that's it that's right well do we feel that that's covered the subject i think we've got all the big bits mm. what do you think brad anything else you want to add in no, I think we got all the the most salient points, really. I think um, a point to drive at home, really, was something that I would uh, definitely recommend to any listeners if they were looking at areas of wanting to develop themselves and overcome challenges, I guess, or do things in line with their values, is to just try things that sound interesting. So hiking for me, uh, when I originally started, uh, the first hike I guess I ever did really was up Mount Lofty it's not a hike really it's just a walk but it is a steep walk at that matter and that was in preparation for going to Tasmania with a group of other hikers so they had recommended that I go and do this hike with them because they said it would be amazing and well yeah I thought okay yeah it was (laughs) and it was through just trying it even though it sounded awful at the time it sounded slightly intriguing as well and so giving it a shot has just got me to where i am now uh, obsessed well not obsessed but very much influenced to keep doing it and you know anybody could possibly find something similar if they do just try something that sounds intriguing you know, might they get the same amount of good stuff out of it that i've gotten out of hiking All I've got to say is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Brad, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you very much, David. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Tim, for having me along here with David today. I thoroughly enjoy talking about this hike. And uh, yes, we'll get you back next year when you've done Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) Look forward to it. (laughs) 
Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. Thank you.